This morning we began a new series of messages entitled Ancient Words. It's going to focus on on an often neglected group of men, the minor prophets. Now, I didn't say the minor league prophets because these guys aren't bench warmers. They had, it's not that they hadn't made it up to the big league prophets yet. It's, they're called minor prophets because the, the length of the books, not the contents of the books, are less. And so as we take a look at these minor prophets, one of the things we're going to dis- discover is these ancient words that they spoke long, long ago are still going to have meaning for us today. We will still find application in those words that were spoken thousands of years ago. And so I'm excited about launching into this new series on the Minor Prophets. We're going to begin with the prophet Hosea. Now, you may want to go ahead right now in your Bibles and and begin to find that because it may take some of you a few minutes. I will tell you the easiest way is to go to the front of your Bible and look at the index. Okay, if you want to cheat, I mean, if you want the easiest way, you can go look at the index in the front of your Bible and tell you exactly what page Hosea starts on. It is in the Old Testament, which is a good thing. It's toward the right side of the Old Testament as you're easing your way through the book. And you'll run into some big books like uh, Isaiah and, and Daniel, Jeremiah. You'll run into some books like that. You want to keep going to the right. And eventually after the book of Daniel, you will find the book of Hosea. Now let me give you while you're flipping there some information on this man Hosea. We don't know a lot about him. His name means salvation. You may find this interesting Hosea is from the same root word as, as Jesus. Jesus means the Lord is my salvation. Hosea is kind of a, a short version of that. It simply means salvation. And we'll find out that even though there's a prophecy of judgment in, in his words, there's also a word of hope and a word of salvation that comes through him as well. His prophecy is way, way, way back yonder, 755 to 722 B.C. It's a good, good long time back. We know that he was the son of Beery. That's all we know about his, his origin, his history, because we don't know anything about his dad. One thing that we do need to note is that he spoke his message to the northern kingdom of Israel. For those of you who aren't familiar with the breakdown at that time, the kingdom of Israel was put together. And under David and under Solomon, it pretty well held together. But after Solomon's reign, his son came in, and he was, he was a knothead. Uh, he really didn't, he didn't listen to wise counsel, and because of that, a rebellion broke out. And what happened was that the northern tribes broke off from the southern tribes. And so there was Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah now, the southern kingdom. And so that kind of gives you the lay of the land. Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom. Now, what really sets Hosea apart, and I want to encourage you to take some time this week. You probably, if you start today and read a couple of chapters, then by the end of the week, you'll be done. There are 14 chapters. And so I want to encourage you to read the book this week. I think it'll help give some more context because we certainly can't cover all of it this morning. What sets Hosea apart is the means by which God chose to communicate to him and through him. He is the only prophet of his kind. Now, it's true that God sometimes chose some interesting means in order to communicate. For instance, he showed up to Moses in a burning bush. He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. But there are some really interesting ways that God actually used the prophets. 
Did you know that the prophet Isaiah for three years walked around stark naked and barefoot? Did you know that? You didn't know that. For three years, he's walking around naked. Now, I am so glad God didn't call me to that, and so are you. But there was a purpose behind it. Because what Isaiah was trying to get across was there was going to come an exile when you're going to be carried away naked. And so God used an extreme means to get a point across. How about the prophet Ezekiel? Did you know that Ezekiel was told by God to lie on his side for over a year and to have a little model of the city of Jerusalem in front of him? And the point of that was to point out that Jerusalem would be under siege. Just like he was facing the city, the armies would be facing the city of Jerusalem. For over a year, can you imagine the crick in his neck when he got up from that? And so God chose some really extreme means to get his message across because sometimes people are just hard-headed. They don't listen. And so now we want to consider what it was that God said to Hosea. And so we're going to put the words on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can look right there in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. And it says this, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. I can only imagine Hosea's response. Do what? You want me to do what? Bible scholars, to be quite honest, they they argue a little bit. They tussle over exactly what God meant. Hosea certainly understood it, but but since we're not back in that time, we have a harder time. And, and, And the debate is whether God was asking Hosea to go take a woman who was at that time promiscuous, who at that time may even have been a prostitute, to go take that woman to be his wife, or whether... God was saying to him, go and take this woman who is at this moment pure a virgin, but will later become promiscuous. Now, either way, it's a pretty tall order. It's one of those strange commands, one of those things that God says, this is what I need you to do, but it's hard to follow. To know that you're going to marry a woman who will betray you, that's got to be hard. And so... We don't know if Hosea argued with God, whether he had these internal struggles. The Bible doesn't tell us that. What the Bible tells us is, though, Hosea's response, which is in verse 3. And it says, so he married Gomer, not Gomer Pyle, USMC. Don't even go there. He married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, we don't have time to go through this verse by verse all the way through the book. So kind of let me give you the the history of what happened here. Uh, Not only did she have one child, she had actually three. And God named all of the children. The first child was named Jezreel. Now, as we consider this, one of the things I want you to note here is that Jezreel would not have made the book of the top 100 baby names in ancient times. Because Jezreel was the name of a valley And it was a place with a story. And I want to tell you at least a portion of that story about Jezreel so you will know how shocking this name was. If you'll remember, Israel had a king named Ahab. He was a wicked, wicked king. 
He was married to a woman named Jezebel, who was probably twice as bad as he was. Ahab was a bit of a whiner. He went out one day and he saw this plot of land in the valley of Jezreel. He saw this plot of land and it was owned by somebody else. He wanted it for a garden and so he wanted to buy it, but the owner wouldn't sell it to him. And so he goes home and Jezebel said, what's wrong today? He, you know, he comes in with this long face. He comes in and says, what, 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 what's, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, I saw this piece of land. I really wanted it. I want to put a nice garden on there, kind of a, a nice royal garden, but the owner wouldn't sell it to me. She said, well, listen, don't worry your head about it. I'll take care of everything. And so what Jezebel does is she has this banquet, and she invites the landowner to come to the banquet. And while there, she sets him up. She has people there who accuse him of both blasphemy and treason, and he's executed. And so the next thing you know, Jezebel comes in and says, hey, you know that piece of land you wanted? I got it for you. Happy birthday. Hope you enjoy it. Now, it wasn't bad enough that that blood was shed in that way in that land. There's a story, if we fast forward a little bit more in, in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 9, which actually tells us what happened to Jezebel. You see, Ahab was a bad dude. God judged him. He was kicked out. Eventually, this guy named Jehu was going to be the next king of Israel. And so he's trying to purge the land of this wickedness, and he goes after Jezebel. And guess where she is? In Jezreel. Jezebel is in Jezreel, and so Jehu goes up to her, and I'm not sure anybody liked her. But she was up in the tower with these servants, and Jehu finally goes up and tells the servants, Hey, Who's on my side? And the servants go, we are. And so they take Jezebel and they throw her out of the tower and she lands with a splat. And just as the prophet Elijah had said, the dogs came and began to lick at her blood. Now, would you name your child Jezreel? I don't think so. But it was a warning against judgment that was going to come against the people. Now, the two other children didn't fare much better. Uh, one was named Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, and the other named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Just think about that. Wonderful children's names, right? Listen, when I look at that, my middle name, Arvestus, sounds sweeter all the time. Okay. Now, I will tell you this. There is, as I said, a word of hope that is in the book. And that hope is that the people, that, that, that the one who was called not loved will be my beloved, and the one who's called not my people will be my people. And so there is a word of hope in there, but you've got to imagine that not only was um, Hosea's marriage part of his prophecy, but also the names of these children were also part of the prophecy. Now, when Bible scholars consider uh, Hosea's life, and his marriage to Gomer, they really don't know exactly when, as I said before, she became promiscuous. Did it ha- was it before she was married, or was it sometime after she'd married? And as I go through and read the commentaries, there are a number of commentar- commentators who believe that the second and third children weren't even Hosea's at all. They belonged to somebody else, but you know, were born into Hosea's household. This thing we do know. Hosea loved her 
even though she played the harlot. Hosea still loved her. Even though this woman slept around, she traded her body for food, for clothing, for jewelry, and for wine. She may have even ended up as a temple prostitute. Now, we don't have any of those around here that I know of. Let me tell you what a temple prostitute did. I think you can figure out the prostitute part. A temple prostitute gave or or sold sexual favors, usually in a temple that was dedicated to the fertility god Baal. You may have heard that term. And by having sexual relations with a temple prostitute, which could be male or female, by having sexual relations with a temple prostitute, that was to ensure the fertility of your crops, that you'd have an abundance of crops. Now you go, well, that sounds kind of screwy to me. Well, it is, but you need to understand this was their thinking. And this may have been where this woman, Gomer, ended up. But this we do know. At some point along the line, whatever man had possession of her got tired of her. Here she was giving her sexual favors away in order to get material gain. And at some point, she must have simply become boring. Someone looking for another thrill. And so she ends up up for auction in a slave sale. Now just think about this. Hosea loved her, took her as his wife. He was a righteous man, a respected man in the community. His wife is out sleeping around, selling herself. You would think that he would turn his back on her and walk away, but who do we find showing up at the slave market? Hosea. And this is what it says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about an omer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same toward you. You'll be faithful to me. And I'll be faithful to you. We look at this situation and we go, why would God put this righteous man, this prophet Hosea, through all of this? Why would he have to endure the heartbreak and the betrayal? Why would he have to endure the, 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 the humiliation that would come along with buying his wife back at a slave market? Why couldn't, God just, why couldn't God just come to Hosea and say, listen, set yourself up on the street corner and just tell the people to straighten up and fly right? Why did God have to do it this way? Well, the answer is that Hosea's shocking life was to be a visual prophecy of the love of God and the unfaithfulness of Israel. His life was a living example of what was going on spiritually in the nation of Israel. This is not merely the story of a tragic prophet and his wayward wife. It is the story of God and his chosen people, a people who abandoned the Lord and would end up paying the price. Now, there are a number of accusations that we find in the book, but I want to highlight three because we don't have a lot of time. And the first accusation that God made against Israel was 
that they were acting unjustly toward others. They were acting unjustly toward one another. In chapter 4, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all the bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. And so everywhere, we're seeing bad behavior among the people toward each other. Now, one of the purposes, if you go back and you look at the laws of God, the things that he commanded the people to do, one of the purposes was obviously that they would know how to be in right relationship to God, but also that they would know how to react and live with one another, how to treat each other fairly and justly and correctly. But what we see here is that they were acting unjustly, unfairly towards one another. Whereas they were called to love their neighbors, they were taking advantage of their neighbors. Now we look at that and we go, oh, that's something just for ancient Israel. Oh, really? Go back and look at those verses and then open the newspaper and look at the headlines. And you'll see that things may not have changed very much. The second accusation was that they had forgotten God. They forgot the Lord. In chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, But I have been the Lord your God ever since you came up out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. And when they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. And both the people and the priests and the paid prophets They had all forgotten the Lord. goes on to say in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse one another, for your people are like those who bring charges against the priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. They forgot the Lord. Because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you've ignored the law of your God, your God, I will also ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. And they exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They fed on the sins of my people and relished their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds." And so we see that they acted unjustly towards one another, but they also forgot the Lord. They forgot all about God as they went through their daily lives. But the third accusation is the one that cuts to the heart, and that is that the people had committed spiritual adultery. The people had committed spiritual adultery. Sadly, this was not the first time that Israel had forayed out into unfaithfulness. Hosea had mentioned how God took care of them in the wilderness. 
Well, let me take you back to the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. After God had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, and he took them out into the wilderness, and he provided for their every need, God was prepared to give them the law, the Ten Commandments. And so they came and they encamped around the base of Mount Sinai. Moses went up onto the mountain to be with God and to receive the law of God. And after a while, the people began to look around and go, well, what happened to Moses? Is he coming back? I don't think he's coming back. And if he's not coming back, then his God's not coming back with him either. And we're out here all alone. What are we going to do? And so they go to Aaron, who was the priest, but he was also Moses' brother. They go to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, we need a God. And Aaron says, well, you've already got one. So no, 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 we need one we can see. I don't think the other one's coming back. And so they collected all their gold together, and they gave it to Aaron, and Aaron went and melted it down and built a calf, a golden calf. And they all began to worship the golden calf. And then, of course, we know the story. Moses came down, and he saw what was going on, and it ticked him off, and he broke the tablets of stone that had the law of God. He, he smashed them, and he smashed the idol. It was not a pretty picture. But just think how quickly they had abandoned the worship of the Lord for the worship of this golden calf. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God had rescued them from slavery. He had brought them out. They had seen the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. They had seen the Red Sea part before them and then swallow up the armies of Israel. They had seen manna on the ground to feed them day after day after day. They had seen water flow from a rock. They had seen God bring quail down from heaven. I mean, just to land there and just sit there and wait to be picked up and eaten. They had seen God's provision, and yet as soon as Moses had taken off and been gone a few days, they were ready to turn their backs on the Lord and begin to worship the idols, the God's of their fathers. It looks like they'd have forgotten all about those gods by now. But they haven't. I think it helps a little bit to understand the culture. For the most part, the people lived off the land. They raised their herds. Later, they, as Israel settled down, they would grow their crops, but other people grow their crops. And one of the things that farmers and ranchers are absolutely dependent on and have no control over is what? The weather. They can't control when it rains. They can't control when the hailstorms are going to come. And so what they were doing is they try to find a way to control the uncontrollable, to guarantee what you couldn't guarantee. One of the prevalent religions of that time was the worship of Baal, the god of fertility to offer sacrifices and to have these, uh, these, these, this temple prostitution going on in order to ensure crops, to ensure abundance of herds. There was this worship of Baal that was ingrained in them. Does anybody know what the symbol of Baal is, how Baal is depicted? What do you think? Just guess. A calf or a bull? Now think back to what they built 
at the base of Mount Sinai. They were returning in their minds and in their worship to the gods that their fathers had worshipped. The Baals, the fertility gods. The worship of Baal became a constant uh, creeping factor. It became the kudzu to the true worship of God. It just continued to grow and continued to creep until it covered nearly everything. Now the Lord, who's called Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord was seen as the delivering God, as the supreme God. He's, he's the God that you called in times of crisis. Does that sound familiar? I'll call on the Lord in times of crisis. When everything's going bad, I'll call on the Lord. But for my daily life, my ins and outs, uh, my crops and fields and herds and flocks, for my daily life, I'll go to Baal. That became a way of life, a way of thinking that, that Yahweh, that the Lord was somewhere out there and he was the supreme God, but he wasn't really interested in my crops. He wasn't really interested in my fields. He wasn't interested in my herds. He wasn't interested in my daily lives. And so I'm going to have to go to Baal. And the people end up worshiping both. And it didn't seem to cause them any headache at all. They found it was really easy to have worship of the Lord and give him lip service, but then to go over here on the side and, and to worship Baal. And we go, now how can people be so, so foolish? How can people do that? And yet, remember, we're warned in the Gospels not to worship both God and money. Ours may not be in the form of a golden calf, but it's no less real. What is it that we rely on? God is the God of a crisis, right? But day in and day out, buddy, I'm relying on my bank account. I'm relying on the money coming in. I'm relying on that check on Friday. That's what I'm counting on. That becomes for us just as much of a God as the God, the, the fake God Baal was. What we've got to realize here is that when, when Hosea spoke so long ago, these words echo down through time into our lives today. And what really became bad was they actually, the line between the Lord and Baal began to get so fuzzy that they couldn't tell the difference. And so they would go to the temple. They would go to Dan or uh, to, to Bethel, they would go to the temple and they would actually have temple prostitutes in a building that was set aside for the worship of the Lord. That's how convoluted, mixed up, and watered down their religion had become. You remember back in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Hosea said that they exchanged the glorious God for something disgraceful. Hosea goes on to proclaim later in chapter 4, verses 10 to 14, they will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish. Remember, these are the reasons that they did this. They had the sacrificial meals and, and they had the, the temple prostitution in order to gain these things. Hosea says you're going to do these things and not have enough because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people will consult a wooden idol 
and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth. There the shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters will turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution or your daughter-in-laws when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding come to ruin. The reason that God had Hosea marry Gomer, the reason that Hosea had to endure the broken heart and the comments from his fellow countrymen and the humiliation of buying his wayward wife back at a slave market was because the people needed something to shake them from their slumber, to rouse them from their warped understanding, and to save them from their empty religion. They needed a visual picture of the status of their relationship with God, and they could see it every time they looked at the broken-hearted Hosea. The people had prostituted themselves. The people were the promiscuous wife, and God was the betrayed and loving husband who would buy his wayward wife back in spite of her betrayal and sin. As we come to the last chapter of this book of Hosea, we hear Hosea calling to the people, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all of our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer you the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. They, they would go to these other nations and say, hey, come partner up with us. We'll submit ourselves to you. If you'll just save us. Assyria cannot save us, is what the people were to say. We will, we will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. And if the people would return to God with that kind of heart, then God's response would be this. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. What we see in the life of Hosea is meant to teach us about the kind of God whom we worship. He is holy and and just, and he will punish sin. But he is also a God of compassion who is wounded deeply by our rebellion and indifference. Even when we have abused his grace, and ignored his pleadings, our God stands ready to take us back, to receive us again, to turn his anger away from us, and to restore us. You see, the God whom we worship bought us, but he didn't buy us with 15 shekels and a half a ton of barley. You and I were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We who had given ourselves over to sin 
who were trapped and utterly incapable of freeing ourselves had a God who looked into our helplessness and hopelessness and he acted. This is what the Bible tells us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still lost in our sin, Christ died for us. Folks, when you read this book of Hosea this week, when you go through page after page after page, remember Hosea was real. His wayward wife, she was real too. But in his life, we're not meant to simply pity him. There's something grander that we're supposed to see. For God is the husband. And you and I, we're the prostitutes. You and I, we're the promiscuous woman. You and I, we're the harlot. We're the slut. We're the whore. Is that offensive to you? I sure hope so. Because it is to God. When I consider who God is and all that God has given me and the price that he paid for me by sending his son to die on a cross to pay the price for my sins and then I go out and worship other gods. You say, Pastor, what do you mean worshiping other gods? Let me tell you, anything that you place in a higher priority than the Lord is a God for you. Anything that has captured your heart and your affections is a God for you. We need to be super careful and examine our lives and say, God, would you please open my eyes so that I can see if there are any other gods around because I want to get rid of them. I want to rid my life of these things so that my heart and my life and my devotion can be fully yours. We have to understand that the only thing that we have going for us is a God who loves and acts to save us. A God who desires his bride in spite of her past. What a picture of mercy and grace we see in the pages of Hosea. This little book, tucked away in an obscure region of minor prophets in the Old Testament, something that can't have any meaning, any relevance for our lives. Ancient words, dusty. And yet when we read them and the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts, they come alive and they speak to us as surely as they spoke to the people in the time of Hosea. Let me just wrap this up by sharing with you three dangers that we must avoid The first is acting unjustly toward others. We need to understand that God has no tolerance for that. You and I are to love others just as we love ourselves. We're to do unto others as we want them to do to us. We don't do unto others the same way they did to us. That's, That's retribution and vengeance, and that belongs to God. We're to treat other people the way we want them to treat us fairly, justly, compassionately. And so the first danger is that we would act unjustly towards others. We know from here, we know that God doesn't want that. 
The second danger is forgetting that God is the source of our blessings. It's sad as you go through here, the people actually give the Baals credit for the blessings that God gave them. There's an incident where Hosea is evidently so in love with his wife that even when she's living with another man, when he sees that she is in need and the other man's not taking care of her needs, Hosea evidently carries food to the house, clothing to the house to meet her needs while she's living with another man. And God uses that to say, you've been out there playing the harlot. You've been out there cheating on me. All the while, I've loved you and met your needs. We've got to be careful that we don't forget that the Lord, the Lord, the Lord alone is the source of our blessings, not your own intelligence, not your own hard work, not your own diligence, not your own planning, but the Lord. And the final danger for us is this, mixing our devotion to the Lord with anything else. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus says, and just as important, you're to love your neighbor as yourself.